Revelation chapter 1, beginning at verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The words we'll be focusing on today are the latter part of verse 4. The seven spirits who are before his throne. So this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that as we continue to look at your word and as we continue hopefully to worship, to hear with an attitude of worship and thanksgiving, to uh, devote the attention of our minds from a motivation seated in our hearts, I pray that you'd bless our time and bless your word. I pray that it would be the cry of our hearts that we would hear truly from your word because you have spoken it and because it is life to the believer, that here we find strength and grace that will bring us to peace. And yet, Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to give us understanding. So I pray that you would, you would do that and help us as we gird up the loins of our minds and study your word. And I pray that you would bring application. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. If you piece together the gospel narrative, especially the synoptic gospels, as they describe the final week of the Lord Jesus' life, I think the picture that you would get is this. First, Palm Sunday actually becomes Palm Monday. Jesus walks into the city of Jerusalem. He looks around. Mark says that He walks into the temple and He looks around. And because it was already late... He turns around and leaves. Day number two, he comes back to Jerusalem, and that's when he walks in and cleanses the temple for the second time. Sometime between that first entrance, looking around the city and around the temple, and that second entrance where he cleanses the temple, we read in Luke chapter 19, this is probably on the second day as he is coming back into the city. Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 41, says that when he drew near and saw the city... He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Now, just to imagine the Lord of glory incarnate weeping is, is enough, it ought to be enough to move us to love Him and to worship Him, but realize that the Lord Jesus is looking upon a city at this time of the year filled to the brim, literally overflowing with people who would by the end of the week be chanting for His crucifixion. And He wept over them because they didn't know the things that make for peace. 
And if he would do that upon that city, just imagine how much more the Lord Jesus longs for his own sheep that he's purchased with his own blood to experience subjectively the objective peace that he's already purchased for them with his own blood. The Lord desires that we as his people understand that, walk in that, live in the peace that he's already won for us. He desires it. If you're a Christian, there was a time when you were a rebel against God's throne. You hated God. Now, even, even if you look back on your history and you recognize that you were raised in church and that you never verbally announced, I hate this God, I despise this God, I'm going to do everything I can to contradict His kingdom. The Bible says that prior to being born again, you were a rebel a hater of God from conception. But God, not willing to have evil have the last say, sent His Son into the world that by His doing and by His dying, those who were rebels would not be estranged anymore, would not be rebels anymore, but be, would be brought and made sons. Now, a lot of times we use the language of sons and daughters of the kingdom, but really in Scripture, it's sons. Because there's a, 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 a spiritual reality, as we've heard, of sonship that goes beyond a daughter. To be adopted as a son means you are made an heir to God's throne, a co-heir with Christ. So Christ Jesus comes... He lives and He dies to reconcile us. And it's not just one-sided. It's not as though, well, I was once a rebel and now I've been brought back and God just sort of with a cold shoulder just kind of looks at me over the top of His glasses and allows me to come in. And it's not as though God has been reconciled and He has His arms wide open and we kind of come moping with our shoulders slouched back to Him. But because Jesus Christ is the perfect mediator between both God and man, both parties delightfully run together and are reconciled. In, that's a reality in the life of a believer. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Peace has been objectively won through the blood of His cross. And yet, this past week, between the last time you sat under the preaching of the Word of God and right now as you sit hearing the preaching of the Word of God, those of you and I as well who have been objectively reconciled to God by the death of His Son sinned against Him again. And again. And again. Just in the past week. Maybe you acted out crimes against God. Forbidden against His law. He says, don't lie, you lied. Or you embellished. Or you just spoke in such a way to deceive just a little bit. Or He has said, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet you promoted yourself before men rather than promoting God. He says, you shall not covet. And yet you looked at things that did not belong to you, that were not yours. And you, in your mind, thought, God, how could you give that to them? You ought to have given that to me. That should be mine. God, I think I would be better at, at dealing the cards here. Or perhaps you failed to do what He's commanded you to do. In, in the Scriptures, God has given commands. A Christian ought to be doing certain things on a regular basis. And perhaps this week there were things that God has commanded you to do and you did not do them. 
Or maybe it was just a sin of, of the heart or the mind where you just for a short period or maybe for several days, maybe in a, in a great decision that you had to make this week, this week, you displayed that you don't really believe God's word is sufficient. You don't really believe God's ways are best because you acted on your own. Now, if we're being honest, more than likely it was all three of those, a mixture of them throughout the week. Whatever the case may be, hopefully that is simply a reminder that the work that is bringing us to subjective peace is not completed. Objective peace is one, but we still have sin remaining in our members. As some have said, you're not who you once were, but you're certainly not who you someday shall be. But we know that it's God's desire that we be brought to peace. He wants to give us the things that make for peace. So much so that we see in the incarnate God-man Him weeping over men. That they would know the things that make for peace. Throughout the New Testament epistles and here in the Revelation, we see this common greeting. Grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. God gives Himself in grace to bring His people to peace. He wants peace and comfort for His churches. In the first century, He wants His churches to be at peace now. Even though the culture around us might be warring, and we might not be at peace with the culture and in the culture inside and with God and with one another, we can and should be able to progressively walk in that subjective peace. Now last week we saw that this letter as a whole and the grace and the peace that God desires for His people finds its source in God the Father, the eternal, unchanging, sovereign God. We see that in the phrase, Him who was, or Him who is, and who was, and who is to come. Now this week we come to the second character in this greeting, in the words, grace to you and peace from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Now, by way of exposition, I want to walk through this and ask three questions. Number one, who is this? Number two, why this title? And then number three, how does this make for peace? How does this bring the churches to a place of comfort? So the first question then, who is this? We want to know that the one declaring grace, the one giving peace, is a credible source. And so to determine that, we need to know who's being described. Now, I think we would all admit that the phrase, the seven spirits of God, is probably a little different. It's not a common description of a being that we know in the Bible. And you would be right because it's only found here in the Revelation. So what I want to do is walk through a... a a very typical Bible study practice. I want to show you how you would go about determining who this is. First, we will look in the Revelation itself and see if John gives us any other clues as to who this is. And then we'll step outside of the Revelation to see if anywhere else in Scripture would help us to understand who is being described. So step one, the language in the Revelation. This phrase, the seven spirits who are before His throne or the seven spirits is used four times in the Revelation itself. Only four. In biblical numerology, now this is going to be for the back shelf and we'll pull it back out in a minute, but in biblical numerology, which is especially important in the Revelation, a book filled with symbolic numbers, the number four represents the totality of the physical earth. 
represented on a compass, north, south, east, west. Very often you'll read the, the four corners of the earth or the four winds of heaven. The number four represents the entire earth. Now let's look at those four uses. First we have this one that we've already read. Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Remember that in every epistle where we have this greeting, grace to you and peace, there's always a source and usually the source is from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's always a divine source. Here we have Him who is and who was and who is to come. We saw last week God the Father. In verse 6 we see, and from Jesus Christ, that would be God the Son. And then in between these two we have the seven spirits who are before His, that is the Father's throne. The second time this reference or this phrase is used is in Revelation chapter 3 verse 1. The words of Him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Now we'll see this when we get to the specific addresses to these seven churches. Every individual address begins with a reference from the description of Jesus Christ in chapter 1 verses 12 to 16. So 12 to 16, this big long visible description of the risen Lord Jesus. And then throughout the letters, it is as if Christ himself reaches back and grabs one of those references and sticks it into the greeting of every church. And in every one of the letters, it is the words of him, and that him is always Christ. And the one to Laodicea, it says the words of the Amen, but we see that referenced prior. It's always Christ speaking. So the words of him, Christ, who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Chapter 1, Christ has the seven stars in his hand. Here he has the seven spirits and the seven stars. Christ has the seven spirits. The risen, ascended, reigning Lord Jesus has the seven spirits. The seven spirits of God who are before the throne of God, we saw in chapter 1. Third reference is in Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now that word torches can kind of catch us off guard because we picture like a blowtorch or something, at least I do. The word could also be translated lamps, a burning light, a flame of some sort. Here before the throne we have these seven torches, seven burning flames, which are the seven spirits of God. So the torches, the flames, the lamps are the seven spirits of God. And they are before the throne of God, which we've already seen in chapter 1 verse 4. And then the last reference in the book of the Revelation is Revelation 5 and verse 6. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Now hopefully I don't have to do a whole lot of work to vindicate the, my assertion that the lamb standing as though it had been slain is the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that it says that this lamb as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes which are 
the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. The Lamb, Christ, has seven horns, seven eyes. The seven horns and the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. They belong to the Lamb. And these seven spirits are sent throughout the whole earth. As we've already seen, four, uh, a fourfold usage very often will point to some reference to the earth. So these seven spirits, not only are they before the throne of God, but they also have an earthly relation, we could say. An earthly ministry. So the Lamb with seven horns and seven eyes are the seven spirits of God. The torches of fire are the seven spirits of God. Christ Himself has the seven spirits of God. And this epistle itself is from God the Father, God the Son, and the seven spirits before the throne of God. I think that would still be somewhat inconclusive. I, I, I would be willing to make an assertion at that point. But the next step that we would do if we're still trying to figure out who this character is, is to look elsewhere in Scripture. John uses the Old Testament more than any other author in this book, more than any other book in the New Testament. So we would ask, is there anything anywhere else in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament, that could lend us some help? Any mention of seven spirits, seven torches, seven lamps, seven eyes, seven horns sent throughout the whole earth? The answer is yes. We find it in Zechariah chapter 4. So if you want to, you can turn there. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 10. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which reign through the whole earth. Crystal clear, right? Well, we obviously have to read the whole chapter. So let's go back to verse 1. The angel who talked with me came again and woke me like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold, with a bowl on the top of it, with seven lamps on it, with seven lips on each of the lamps that are on the top of it. And there are two olive trees by it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on its left. And I said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered me and said, or answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands shall also complete it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For whoever has despised the day of small things shall rejoice and shall see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These seven are the eyes of the Lord which range through the whole earth. Then I said to him, What are these two olive trees on the right and the left of the lampstand? And a second time I answered and said to him, What are these two branches of the olive trees which are beside the two golden pipes? 
from which the golden oil is poured out. He said to me, Do you not know what these are? I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Now that's going to come into play in chapter 11 of the Revelation. But we see these seven are the eyes of the Lord. What seven? Go back to the picture. The seven lamps with seven lips. So here's what Zechariah sees. One lampstand with seven lamps. Clearly a picture of the menorah that would have been in the tabernacle or the, the temple. On top of this menorah, these seven lamps, there's a bowl. And feeding into that bowl are, what I, from what I can gather, 49 spouts that are connected to two olive trees. So here's the picture. You've got the olives, they're growing. The oil is always feeding into the bowl. And the bowl is always feeding into the lamps. Therefore, this lamp will never burn out. What's the picture? Well, he doesn't say, well, the picture is. He says, the picture is the message. Here's the message. Not by human power, not by human might, but by my spirit. The picture is supposed to tell Zerubbabel that by the power of God's spirit, the temple will be built. It's not explicit. He doesn't say the picture is the spirit. He says the picture is meant to convey this message. The never-ending, ever-flowing, never-ceasing power of the Holy Spirit burning, fueling this flame will bring the temple to completion. So the seven lamps here are the seven eyes of the Lord which range throughout the whole earth. That's in exact parallel to what we saw in Revelation 5-6 which are the seven spirits of God sent throughout the whole earth. The seven lamps, the centerpiece of this whole picture again point to the never-ceasing, ever-flowing, unending supply of power in the Holy Spirit. In other words, the seven spirits of God, the seven torches, the seven horns, the seven eyes of the Lamb and of Yahweh, we see in Revelation, or I mean Zechariah 4.10, these are the eyes of Yahweh, they're also the eyes of the Lamb, are all references to the Holy Spirit. But not... The Holy Spirit simply ontologically or, or as a being, but specifically as the Holy Spirit serves as the instrumental power of God throughout the whole earth. Remember, seven is the number of qualitative fullness or completion. So we have the seven spirits. It's meant to point to the fact that this spirit is the fullness of divine power at work in the world. Now, if we go back to the Revelation, we... We have to then ask, does that translation or will that interpretation fit in the uses in the book? Go back to Revelation 1.4. Would it make sense for John to include the Holy Spirit in this formula? God the Father, God the Son in the middle, God the Spirit. That would make perfect sense. It's a divine Trinitarian source. We go to 3.1. Would it make sense for, to say that Christ has the power of the Holy Spirit, or has the Holy Spirit. Of course it would. We read in Acts chapter 2 that Christ has ascended into the heavens and the Spirit, the authority to send the Spirit into the earth has been given to Christ. Chapter 4, verse 5, the torches are before the throne. Would it make sense to say that the Holy Spirit is somewhere in the throne room of heaven at this point? Of course it would. Chapter 5, verse 6, would it make sense to say that the, the lamb slain 
with seven horns and seven eyes is a reference to the Holy Spirit sent throughout all the earth. Of course it would. Jesus himself said that he would send the Holy Spirit, and he said, you will become my witnesses into Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. The power sent by Christ to empower his people throughout the whole earth. So that's my answer. Who is this? It's the Holy Spirit. Next question is, why this title? Why doesn't John just say the Holy Spirit? Well, John never says the Holy Spirit in the Revelation. I don't think that he's just quoting Zechariah flippantly. I don't think that this is just an old man who's trying to show how much he knows the Old Testament. And so he just grabs this really mysterious reference to the seven spirits and says, oh, I wonder if they'll ever figure this out. I believe he's being very purposeful in his use. Remember, the purpose of the revelation is to comfort the saints by reminding them of God's perspective, to give them grace from God that would bring them to a state of peace. So if we go back to Zechariah, what was happening in that passage? Zerubbabel has led a group of people back to Jerusalem after captivity to rebuild the temple. He's sort of the, the leader in charge of leading the rebuilding of the temple. But if you read, especially Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll, you'll learn that there was much opposition, not only from some of the people within the nation, but from outside individuals, from other nations, other kings. They did not want this temple rebuilt. They knew, their records had shown, there was a God who dwelled in that temple at one time, and He ruled. You don't want them to rebuild that temple. There was much opposition. And so God, through this vision to Zechariah, speaking to Zerubbabel, says, Don't worry. It's not going to be by human might. It's not going to be by human strength. It's going to be by the power of the Holy Spirit. This temple will be rebuilt. But then we have to wonder, back in Zechariah chapter 4, we have these phrases like the seven eyes ranging throughout the whole earth. Verse 14, the, the anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Why does Zerubbabel need to know that the Spirit has been sent throughout the whole earth? If he's just building this little temple and this little plot of land in Jerusalem, without rehashing everything we heard several weeks ago, I believe what's happening is that Zerubbabel and his temple-building efforts are actually a foreshadowing of a construction or the construction of a spiritual temple. And we could go to Haggai and, and I think vindicate that assertion. I won't go into all that. I will just go straight to the New Testament fulfillment of this foreshadowing. In the New Testament, we learn that Christ is building a worldwide temple. Not made of rocks, mined out of the ground in Israel, but made of people from every tribe and nation and people and language. And Christ is building that temple not by human might, not by human power, but by the power of, of His Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 2, 21 and 22, it says, that the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God sent throughout the whole earth that builds this temple. So in Zechariah you've got one lampstand with seven lamps. What does a lampstand do but hold up the light? This 
never-ending, never-ceasing flow of power coming into this lamp that will empower this temple project. In the Revelation, you have not one lampstand, but seven lampstands, which are the churches. And the church has its job. What, is, what does a lampstand do? It holds up the light, which is the testimony of Christ. And how does it continue to do that? By the never-ending, never-ceasing, ever-flowing power of the Holy Spirit. Again, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and, and what? You'll speak in tongues. No, you'll be my witnesses. That's the, the first evidence that the power of the Spirit has come and remains is that people are witnesses to the resurrection of Christ. So the seven spirits, the reason John uses that language is to remind these seven churches of the never-ending, ever-flowing power of the Holy Spirit that has been sent out into all the world to fuel the flame of Christian witness through local churches. And that's how the temple is built. Third question. How does this comfort, how does this make for peace? Especially in those original seven churches. Remember their situation. Some of them had already faced literal physical persecution. Some of them had been killed. Antipas had been killed. Others of them, Jesus says, you're about to face it and you're going to die. Others of the churches were experiencing slander in their community. They were fighting off false teaching as it begins to seep under the doorway into the church. Others were just guilty of spiritual laziness. Others, perhaps all of them through all of this, are, are being pressured to compromise their convictions for the sake of peace with the culture. If you just bend a little bit... Everything's fine. If you hold to that conviction, if you hold to that testimony, it's not going to be fine. You're not going to be able to shop. You're not going to be able to work. You're not going to make it. So how does this encourage these kinds of churches? How would it encourage us? Let me remind you of what we found out in our study. This spirit is God. The seven spirits of God. This is God Himself. Christ Himself has the seven spirits. He is God, proceeding forth from the Father and the Son. Now, we confess that. That's typically fairly normal language. But I wonder how often we really think like that. A lot of times we tend to think that the Holy Spirit is an extension of God. A, a tool that God uses. Or perhaps the right arm of God. Just not God. The Holy Spirit is God. He's all of God. He's not any less God than the Father or the Son. He is the fullness of God. That's why it's the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit. And when you've got the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't have anything less than the power of God that created the universe, that sustains the universe. The power that raised Christ from the dead dwells in those who have the Holy Spirit. This is God in every believer and especially in every church. We also saw the Spirit is before God's throne. The seven torches were before God's throne. This tells us that this work of the Spirit is a divine work that issues from the throne of God. So just like the Son has not ran off on His own mission, it is not as though the Spirit has ran off on His own mission. All of their work finds its 
origin in the command center of the universe. The Spirit is there in the presence of God Almighty. His work issues from the throne of God and therefore it is unstoppable. This is God's work. As Paul says in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now we typically, and I think it's perfectly acceptable, to apply that to the individual believer, but that was written to a congregation. The Christ who began a work in that church, He said He'll bring it to completion. It will be completed. Why? Because this is a divine work issued from the throne room of God. We also saw the Spirit is sent throughout the whole earth. The four corners of the four winds of heaven, north, south, east, and west. In Zechariah and in Revelation, mention is made of the eyes of Yahweh and the eyes of the Lamb going throughout the whole earth. Now throughout the book of the Revelation, especially chapters 4 and 5, God is in the throne room. And the Lamb is in the throne room. And the Lamb slowly makes His transition up to the throne itself in the book. He's there. We know that Christ, the incarnate God-man, is not physically omnipresent. He's got a physical body for eternity. But it's His Spirit who's been sent throughout the whole earth. It's His eyes, His horns. And by His Spirit, Christ Himself can be personally with and operative in every local church on the earth all at once. John 16 and verse 7, Jesus said, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send Him to you. That's a promise to every true believer in every true church. It's to our advantage that the physical Christ has ascended and the Spirit has been sent out into all the earth from the throne of God. The Spirit... If we wanted to give a very overly simplistic description of the Spirit of God and what we would consider the economy of the Trinity, we could say that the Spirit is God at work in the world, in, in men, in the church. Christ is the one who has the seven horns and the seven eyes. Now throughout the scriptures, horns are representative of power and eyes see but it's interesting that eyes also have power as well. Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. So we could conclude simply from the horns and from the eyes, the Spirit is God at work in power on the earth. And what does the Spirit do? Well, He applies the work of Christ to individual believers. He gives gifts to the church for the building up of the body. Ultimately, what we, if we wanted to summarize all of what the Spirit is doing, He is empowering local churches to be an effective, faithful witness for Christ. That's what He does. John 15, 26 and 27, Jesus said, When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me, and you also will bear witness, because you have been with Me from the beginning. 
The Spirit of God is God at work in the world bearing witness to Christ. And He does that. The Spirit addresses the world through the witness of the local church. The church, we learn, is the pillar and buttress. It holds up what? The truth. That's our job. So the Spirit of God is the power of God at work in the world through the church to give a consistent witness to Christ. As we read in Revelation 19.10, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's, that's it. It all comes back to that. Testifying, witnessing for Christ. The Spirit of God empowers the church of Christ to continue to uphold the light of the truth concerning Jesus Christ. We would call that the gospel. We are lampstands. We burn with power the power of the Holy Spirit, and we hold up the light of the gospel. Now, remember from our overview of the Revelation, what happens when the church bears witness? Throughout the book, throughout the history of the world, throughout the history of the church, when the church bears witness to Christ, the world hates the church, the world persecutes the church, the world kills Christians, the devil and his helpers, they hate Christ. They want him gone. They want to stop the temple building project. And because the devil, this is Revelation 12, because he failed to take out Christ before he ascended into the heavens, now he comes after the followers of Christ. That's what we ought to expect in the world. You bear witness, you hold up the light, the world hates it, the world wants it stopped, they want to kill you. Now, that sounds like a word of discomfort to churches who are in that. They might hear that and say, yeah, we know. It's not discomforting when you understand that faithfulness unto death is how you win. Not how you lose. That's how you win. That's how Christ won. He was faithful. He was obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Do we think we're going to be treated any better than our master? No. We hold up the light. We bear witness. We remain faithful unto death. Whatever that might look like. Maybe it means just holding fast into old age. Maybe that means martyrdom at the stake. But we hold fast unto death. And we win. What's the worst that they can do to us? Kill us? What are you going to do? Kill us? That's what they did with Christ. And he won. That's what he said. Now is the ruler of this world cast out. He went to the cross in victory. He knew that that was the casting out of Satan at the cross. Now turn to Revelation chapter 12. Because I want you to see this. Beginning at verse 10. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him. How? By the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony for. They loved not their lives even unto death. They won. How? The lamb conquered. He bled and died. How do they conquer? They held fast unto death. They didn't love their lives so much that they gave up the witness, but they were faithful unto death. 
Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath. Why? Because he knows that his time is short. That's why he's so upset. The church holds up the light of the truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we just stand and we just hold it. We just bear witness. Through his power we just stand and hold the light. The devil hates that. The world hates that. So they come after. The devil came after Satan. He lost. He can't get, or the devil came after Christ. He lost. So now what does he do? He comes after the saints. Some of them are persecuted and some of them are killed. This is the work of the devil, as we're going to see as we move through the book, only because he's allowed to exercise this effort. Every time a precious saint suffers or dies for the testimony of Christ, it is a reminder to the church that even the devil knows that he's already been defeated. He knows his time is short. He knows he's lost. He knows he didn't get Christ while he was on the earth. All he can do is harm the saints of God. So as the smell of our flesh wafts up at the stake, that's the smell of victory for the saints. That's why they can go to the stake singing and rejoicing. It's not a loss. It's a win. We won. Look, he's burning. We're winning. We're winning. Well, how can that be a win? Because that's a reminder that the devil is backed into a corner like a wounded animal, and he's doing everything he can to stop this temple project, and he can't do it. Because every time he kills one, five more pop up. And every time he kills five, ten more pop up. You can't stop it. So how do we apply this? I think it's fairly clear. Number one, stand firm in your witness to Christ, regardless of the consequences. What's the worst they can do? Kill us? We win. Just like in Asia Minor, there will always be pressures to conform to the culture. And our commission, the job of the church, is always to hold fast to the testimony of Christ. There are few things more firmly established in the Scriptures than the fact that the saints of God are going to suffer and have tribulation and affliction, some of them even unto death in this life. That's how you know a cult. Every cult says things are going to get better. Christianity says things are going to be awful. Jesus said, in this world, you will have tribulation. It's promised. Now, there are what we might call small-scale trials, smaller trials and temptations that we have on a regular basis to succumb to the temptations of our culture, pressures from the outside. From God's perspective, He uses those things to produce in us steadfastness and to manifest false converts. Because temptation usually weeds out. And trials and, and affliction weeds out false converts. And from the devil's perspective, he'll use those very same things to try to weaken the testimony of the church, to try to bring reproach upon Christ through his bride. And this is going to be throughout the lives of every Christian. There's always going to be a pressure to cave at some point. But then there's also those large-scale tribulations and suffering where the pressures to conform go so far as to limit what you can and cannot do in a society because you're a Christian. 
going so far as persecution unto death. From God's perspective, this produces steadfastness. It actually strengthens the church. It purifies the bride. And from Satan's perspective, again, he is attempting to destroy the church because he knows his time is short. He is a devil on a leash. He can only do what God allows him to do insofar as it makes the bride lovely. God has a, a work and he uses even the devil in that work. In either one of these small-scale trials, large-scale suffering, stand firm in your convictions. Hold fast to the testimony of Christ without wavering. Don't back down. Don't give in. That's not simply the truth that Jesus came and died and rose from the dead, but all of Scripture, everything that God has clearly stated in His Word, stand on it no matter what. Don't back down no matter what. You back down, that's beginning to bring reproach upon the bride. That's... that that could lead men to think, well, this Holy Spirit, he, He's not very powerful. But when you stand on it and nobody can understand why, you can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, every time a saint dies, having held fast their witness for Christ unto the end, the devil knows that he lost another one. He knows that's another one that's already went on to their reward. I can't get them. I'll go on to the next one. So stand firm unto death. As he says in Revelation 2.10, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Hebrews 10 says, We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now, our situation here is not at that large-scale tipping point yet like it is in many places around the world. But we have to remember that small-scale afflictions are very often preparatory for large-scale suffering. There are a lot of people who think in their minds that they would be willing to go to the stake for Christ who can't even stand up to their employer or their parents or their friends, their co-workers, their in-laws. They can't even stand up there. And you think you're going to go to the stake? We might never have to endure those intense trials. We may, may never have to look at the stake and pick between death or life. And many will never have to undergo that because the devil's already proven them to be a fake through little things. Little, little trials come, back down, back down, back down. The devil says, move on to bigger fish. That one's done. That's a fake. Additionally, our children will more than likely have to live in a, a more harsh environment than we have than we live in. And so we have to stand firm on our convictions and train them by showing them what mom and dad believe and that mom and dad believe what they say they believe and that mom and dad are not willing to shift the goalpost of their convictions depending on the circumstance or who might be involved. That's how you train your children. And they might not understand a lot of the decisions that we make as we're raising our children, but they'll know one thing. Mom and dad didn't shift. They didn't change. They weren't different on Monday than they were on Sunday. They held fast. It cost them, but they stood firm. We better prepare our children for this. Second point of application. Not only ought we to stand firm, but we ought to rejoice in suffering. Rejoice in suffering. Your response to suffering, Martin Lloyd-Jones said, is the acid test of your profession. It's not a Christian response simply to endure. 
It's a Christian response to rejoice, to glory in suffering. That's what a Christian does. James 1, he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God is using this. Rejoice that you can see God making you stronger. Romans 5, 3-5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that the suffering or that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now, I won't try to make the connection there between the gift of the Holy Spirit and being able to rejoice in suffering, which would be perfectly applicable to the Revelation, I just want you to see, Christians rejoice in suffering. You want to examine yourself? What do you do when times get tough? When the pressure is applied, where do your convictions go? We can compare that to Matthew 13. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. An immediate spring up is dangerous. Tribulation and persecution, whether large or small, are going to test the roots to see if it's genuine. The true saint holds fast their testimony, rejoices in suffering, and gives evidence that the sevenfold Spirit of God is fueling the flame in them. When the world says, how is that flame burning? We'd have to say, not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. Rejoicing in suffering is contrary to our fallen nature. We rejoice in suffering because it's a reminder to us that the victory has already been won. Again, even at the stake, he's winning. And lastly, I'll close with this. Every now and then I have to squeeze in a shameless plug for the local church. The lampstands are not seven parachurch ministries. The lampstands are not seven individuals watching YouTube. The lampstands of the local church. Christ the greater Zerubbabel is building a temple by the power of the Holy Spirit. And that never-ending, ever-flowing power of the Holy Spirit has been sent out into all the world to fuel the flame of Christian witness in local churches. The lampstands are the seven churches. The Holy Spirit has given every true saint of God gifts to edify the body of Christ so that the church, the bride, can faithfully, more efficiently hold up the light of the gospel. Whatever God's doing in you, yes, it is individually beneficial, and it is a blessing, but it doesn't stop there. It's given for the edification and the building of the body. Stand firm. Rejoice in sufferings and give yourself to the ministry of the church. Let's pray.